Now we're in between studies. Uh, we finished First Corinthians. We'll get to First Peter, and we're looking at really the state of the church. And what I wanted to do was do that from the pastoral epistles, the pastoral letters from Paul to a couple of men that he trained, Timothy and Titus. And I love that, uh, that he wrote letters to men that he trained, that he walked with, that he discipled, that he um, helped grow in the Lord step by step and trained in a way where he would sort of pass a baton uh, for them to carry out the very ministry that he laid out for them. Well, here's your Thanksgiving plug. Second Timothy 1, 3, Paul tells Timothy, I thank God as I constantly remember you in my prayers night and day, mindful of the sincere faith within you. And so Paul is thankful for these two men. He trained them. He loved them. In fact, he was so concerned for them that he wrote both of them about the challenges to the church. He wanted them to know you're doing pastoral ministry, but pastoral ministry isn't easy. It comes with challenges constantly and oftentimes not just challenges, but challengers. Those that bring stress to the church, stress to the the very ministry that you're trying to accomplish, the parenting that you're trying to accomplish in the Lord. These are the attackers to the church. And so these are sort of letters to fortify the church with. That is to make it a defensible place. And I, I'm thankful for the fact that, you know, you have passages like Matthew 16 where the Lord Himself tells us the gates of Hades will not overpower it. And so though we talk about making the church a defensible place, we have that promise. The Lord will not let His church be defeated. But He does so through the work of the church. He does so through the faithfulness of brothers and sisters that just love Christ. Now, how will this take place? You have this attack, and we talked about the seven uh, challengers to the church um, that he wrote to Timothy and Titus about. And we boiled it down to two things. Remember two things. First, how, so how can we how can we defend? How can we bring defense? Well, first of all, remember how the gospel works. And in that, we talked about the doctrines of grace and how precious they are, and how important and valuable, and how critical. And we we need the doctrines of grace. We need to be reminded how it is we got into this church and why we're here. So we looked at that first one for the last three weeks. This morning, the second strategy, remembering how the church works. How the church works. 
And you can really sense Paul's heart in the first letter to Timothy. So make sure you're in 1 Timothy. And as you turn to 1 Timothy, turn to chapter 3. And in particular, let's look at verses 14 and 15 as our starting, as our kind of our launching pad. Paul says to Timothy, I am writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long. But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Now in that statement, you get the heart of what the church should be about. What the church should be doing. Notice the word conduct in verse 15. What the church ought to do. Our conduct, our behavior. In other words, he's writing them, he's writing Timothy, so that Timothy might help the church remember how she should behave. How the church ought to behave. What the church ought to be about. And it is clear from scripture that when God saves a person, he wants him in the path of doing things. Now, we can't just do things and call them spiritual. But he makes us to be spiritual that we might do things. It's not just coming on Sunday. The doing of things is not the difficulty of finding a couple of hours in your life to put clothes on early and walk through door uh, those two doors over there and come sit down, shake a few hands, give a few hugs, leave those doors and wonder, I'm not sure when I'll be here next or whatever, or, or maybe I'll see people next Sunday. That's not Christian living. That is not what he has saved us, how he has saved us to behave. And it is clear from Scripture that God, that when God saves a person, he wants them in a path of doing the right things, behaving a certain way. In Ephesians 2, after saying, by grace you have been saved. You know, whatever he's going to say after that, that's amazing. So whatever he's going to say, I want to, I'm I'm tuning in, I want to pay attention, okay. Saved by grace, now what? Listen to this. He tells us that salvation is by grace. He says this in verse 10, For we are his workmanship. Poema. We are his masterpieces. We are his, literally, that's the word from which we get our, the word, English word poem from. We are his art. We are the thing that he, when he saved us, he saved us. You know what you do with art? You display it. And God saved you to display to the world something marvelous. For we are his art created in Christ Jesus. That's salvation by God's sovereign grace, created in Christ Jesus. Notice, created in Him. He did that. 
Remember how he created? He spoke into existence. He spoke your, he spoke regeneration. Your regeneration was spoken into existence. You understand that? You received the gospel and boom. Your salvation was created. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. In other words, to do something. But it's even more profound than that. Which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. The very things we ought to be doing, our conduct, our behavior that we are to have, was prepared before we were saved It's incredible. That's a phenomenal point. We can just meditate on that and think deeply on that as, as you think about the, I mean, there, there not being any accidents. He puts you in, maybe to say it this way, God puts you in the arena where He wants you to, to do the things He wants you to, to have the impact that He wants you to have. And so even that is a work of God's sovereign Grace. That's why we start with how the gospel works. Now we look at how the church works on the basis of God's sovereign grace. Now where do you find that work to do? Right here in the church, you see. And in 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 15, we get a statement by Paul that says, you need to know how to behave in the church. Now take a closer look at those two verses. He gives us a clue about what the church should be about. First, it's all about Scripture. Look at verse 14. I am writing these things to you. What things? This whole letter. First Timothy. I think he means by that, by the, these things, I believe he means the whole letter. I write this whole letter to you, Timothy. And he says, hoping to come to you before long. And that by, by saying that, he's talking about fellowship. Now, he has things to say, and he'd like to say them in person. But this is what I love about Paul. He says, I've got things I want to tell you in person, but I just can't wait. Why? Because I might not get there. So, I'll just write it. I'm going to send it to you. You tell the church. But really, this is for you. And I like that. There's great accountability. You as a pastor, tell these people this. And tell, make sure these are the things I want you, Timothy, to know. And now they know that I want you to know. So there you go. But what I like about this is what he gave to him was First Timothy. It's this letter. It's scripture. He says, uh, but in case I'm delayed, I write, verse 15. He says, what I have to say is so important, I need to write it and send it just in case I don't make it to you. And you know, beloved, history tells us that Paul never did get back to this church at Ephesus after this letter. This is right after Paul's first time in jail. So it's a, it's, it's a good thing that he wrote this. And because of it, we get scripture. So the first thing the church is to be about is scripture. You talk about, so these are preliminary things with regards to our behavior. It is about scripture. In other words, he says, be a Bible church. Be a Bible church. What do you guys do as a church? Well, the main thing I can tell you is that we're just about the Bible. 
we're just about the Bible. I mean, it's not even just in our name. It's, it's, it, the name just helps us remember, oh yeah, we're about the Bible. Listen, the principles have to become practice. The beliefs have to become behavior. A church is defined by not only what it believes, but by how it behaves, what it does. Not just doctrine, but duty. So we make the scripture, we hold it up, we make it the standard, we make it the talk, we make it our mind, our thinking. Secondly, it's all about behavior, and that connects to what he says in verse 15, that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God. Conduct, behavior. That's where the principles become practice. Okay. So that's the second thing. It's about scripture. It's about behavior. Thirdly, it's all about seeing yourself in the context of family. Seeing yourself in the context of family. Verse 15, in the household of God. The Greek word there is oikos. Um, that word literally is, is it is, uh, it, can, it can be translated building. But I don't believe he's talking about the actual building. In verse 4, an elder who manages his own oikos, same word, household, family, his own kids. Same thing in 2 Timothy 1.16 and Titus 1.11. You, you behave a certain way because you belong to a certain family. It's in the blood, see. You know, the, again, I mentioned to you Thanksgiving, and it's wonderful to have Thanksgiving and to have a... a a reason to be around family and everything, but never forget, though that's special, more special is the household of God, the family of families. More special. And most special is when that family that you have, they know and love the Lord. So that it's family all over the place. So, He says, the household of God, the family of God, literally is how you could translate that. Fourth, it's all about example and pattern. Again, these are preliminaries you need to know. It's all about example and pattern, verse 15, so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself. The you there is singular. So that you, Timothy, will know how one ought to behave. So wait a minute, wait a minute. Why not say, make it plural? Well, because what he's telling Timothy is, you need to be the church's example, Timothy. I mean, he is to know how to behave, so the church will know how to behave. You know, we need illustrations of it, don't we? We need a picture. You know, what our behavior, uh, what should our behavior look like, right? I mean, I think that's so important. And I tell you what, parents, let me just echo this and try to make this resonate for you. Whatever it is that you're telling your kids, do this, don't do that. Let me tell you something. They interpret do this and don't do that by your life that you live for them. Whatever it is that you do and don't do, that's what they're going to understand what do this, don't do that means. We're the blueprints for them. We're the example, we're the illustration for them of the very things that we're trying to 
Help them understand what's important. This is important. And I tell you what, receive the rebuke when your kids come back to you and say, well, but how come you, right? That does happen, doesn't it? Well, but how come you say this? That's the Lord helping you see, oh, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. I was supposed to live out Christ for you when I'm trying to encourage you to live out Christ. And so, what should our behavior look like, church? Paul says, Timothy, I want you to show them. Give them the picture, that church there. And so you look at your elders and kids, you look at your parents and so forth. And then lastly, the fifth sort of preliminary here in all of this is is to know that it's all about giving the world a picture. Not just your other believers a picture, but giving the world a picture. Look at verse 15 one last time, which is the church of the living God. Literally, it reads this way. The church living God. The church living God. Isn't that interesting? What does that even mean, the church living God? He's saying the church is God? Well, it it sort of reads that way, but we know that he's not calling the church God. But what he is saying when he lumps all of it together, the church living God, is, is he's saying... The church should make it clear to everyone that sees it that God lives. Remember this place that he wrote to there in Ephesus was a massive factory of idols. And the the chief one was Diana or Artemis. Diana was the female version, Artemis the male version. It was... This God, goddess, that when you brought, when you sailed in, when the boat was brought in to the area, to the cove, the statue was just massive and it just stood up and it was, it had this, these, these, it was plated too. It had these kind of reflector plates so that as the sun shone on this, it would just light up like a glorious picture. And it's as though he's saying, and it was brilliant. It's as though, it said that's what you would see. And you, and what they, that's how they wanted it. They wanted you to think, oh, great is Artemis. Great is Diana. It's so it's as though Paul is saying, no, 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 no. For all the shininess that that God, supposed God, has, that is lifeless. You're the church living God. You're the church that shows that the God whom you serve is not some 90-foot statue that gets its brilliance from the sun. Your brilliance comes from the one who made the sun. So in other words, it is a picture of God's life. That, that is, that God is living. The world should look at our behavior and come to the conclusion that God is alive. That He is real. And that He lives through the church for now. Listen. And that He's good. Right? Now put it all together. 
And if we ask the question, what is the church? Here's what you get based on all of that. Into verse 15, the pillar and support of the truth. The church is a pillar in support of the truth. What's that mean? Now think about that structure. Now, what they had in the temple of Diana or Artemis were these 127 pillars that kind of went all around, okay? And these things were overlaid with gold and glorious looking. And these pillars supported the structure for which Diana or Artemis sat on. And what he is saying is, no, no, no. We're the church that is the pillars, we're the pillars that supports the truth about who God really is. The church is holding up not Diana, not Artemis, but the truth. The church exists to hold up the truth, to say it a different way, to lift up Scripture. We lift it up. We lift it up. Just lift it up. I tell you, I get this all the time. Dads, they want to know, what do I do? I've just realized, you've told me, you've, you've made it clear that we're the, the dads are the priests of the, of the home, that we stand there, you know, for the, you know, as, as sort of the prophet and the priests of, of the home to give them what they need and to lead the family and the worship. But I get before these people and I'm scared to death. What do I do? Listen, it's daunting because you hold before you lives, precious lives. God wants you to use you to guide. And I tell you what, if you don't know much, there's one thing you can do. Lift up Scripture. Just lift it up. Say, how do I do that? Well, you can read it, right? And even if you have to use other books of men that have come before and have written things that, have, that are so helpful in explaining Scripture, do that. And you read that in your home, and you'll be helping to do this very thing. Now listen, we don't modify it. We safeguard it. We support it. We get up under it and lift it up. And you know, just like a pillar, you just stand there. You just stand there. Quit moving and going all over the place and doing all kinds of things you shouldn't be doing. Just stand there and lift up the word. Now, how do you know then if the church is doing that? Very simple. You look at her behavior. What does it look like when the church works? So many broken churches out there. Now listen, like... They're like broken clocks. Sometimes they look right, but only twice a day. Okay? What does the church behaving the right way look like? That's what I want to show you. And uh, I'm going to lay out as many points as I can from these three letters. And we'll start this morning and we'll see if we can finish up next Lord's Day. But that will require a lot of faith. All right. 
So let's start with the first one. She is behaving when she, number one, commits to sound doctrine. Commits to sound doctrine. The first thing to see from these pastoral letters, if you want to fortify your church, you commit to sound doctrine. That's what we must do. That's what how we must behave. Now, what do we mean then by sound doctrine? Literally, the word sound is where we get our English word hygiene from. It means healthy doctrine, clean doctrine. The theology we get from the Bible, that's what we're talking about. The theology that we believe, the core of our beliefs about God, about salvation, about sin, about who Jesus is and what the Bible is all about. Now what is always a concern for Paul was that. And he was passing that on to Timothy and Titus. Guys, you have to be committed to sound doctrine, he tells them. Guard it. Stick to it. Don't don't play fast and loose with it. You know, the modern church puts the doctrine really low on the list. What should a, what should a church do? You know, we we you, you ask that question, and I suppose if we were to survey lots of churches, I mean, we would get all kinds of pious answers, but What should a church do? The church's answer today is predominantly this. Hey, be positive. Um, Make everyone feel comfortable. Play a lot. Laugh. Make friends. Find out what people want. Fit in with your culture so that people will like you and then meet the needs that people want you to meet. There you go. You do that and you are doing what you need to do as a church. Not according to Paul. He says something different. Sound doctrine is not on the church's list today. You know, you tell somebody, well, what's your church about? Sound doctrine? What? (laughs) That's interesting. They might say, well, that's interesting. I mean, I'm not one to judge. That works for you. That's nice, fine. But we think it should be about these things, they'll tell you. Listen, that's not Paul's approach. Notice here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, starting verse 3, Paul tells Timothy, when I left Ephesus, I wanted you to stay and be the pastor there to instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Now, what what are strange doctrines? Literally different doctrines. Of a different kind. Different than what? Different than the doctrine that they got from the apostles. Acts 2.42, remember that? Devoted to the apostles' teaching. Listen, beloved, you start with what you believe and teach because that's what informs what you do. Trying to twist sound doctrine is the scheme of the devil. Look over at chapter 4, verse 1. Some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. 
What's the goal of the devil? I'll give it to you. To get people that say they are Christians to doubt their beliefs. If he he could just get you to start doubting, sowing those seeds of doubt, start doubting what you read, doubt these, these doctrines, he could get you to go a lot of places and to do a lot of things. Get people to question. Get them to fall away from sound doctrine and to believe in demon doctrine. By the way, demon doctrine doesn't come in a red package with horns on it, okay? It never does. Never has. I never get too concerned with... When you get people that are out there saying, you know, running around with pitchforks and horns and, and trying to say they're Satan worshipers and everything, I think, well, you've been that from day one. I don't know if you're just dressing crazy. I mean, that's, that's all you're really doing. The real ones, though... They, by the way, Satan's not even interested in people like that. The real ones are the ones that have, you know, nice shirt and tie, are the ones that shine their boots, that make it into churches. What does demon doctrine look like? Look at verse 6. Paul tells Timothy, you need to be constantly nourished on the words of the faith and of the sound doctrine which you have been following. Now, notice... First of all, which you have been following. Demon doctrine always introduces new stuff. It always tries to spruce up the old. It starts by putting a shine on the old, and then it changes it a little, and then it finally replaces it. Notice. Timothy was nourished by sound doctrine. It was good diet. Demon doctrine is like junk food. Tastes great, doesn't nourish. It eventually makes you less sharp and it makes you slow and it makes you sluggish and it takes you away from the team. It makes you selfish. Instead of building your body up, it tears it down. It makes promises to your body to satisfy, but it is like drinking soda all day long. You get dehydrated and eventually there's organ failure. And that's just what so many Christians look like on a diet of movies and TV sermons and fiction books or prosperity teaching. And all of it makes you sick and emaciated and malnourished. And no wonder there's so little spiritual strength in the church today to resist a little woke movement that comes around. Can't even even handle COVID. Temptation comes and so many supposed Christians out there just giving in left and right. 
Paul just keeps warning about demon doctrine. Go to chapter 6, verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, okay? If anyone has a different doctrine, introduces a different doctrine, advocates a different doctrine, and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited. He understands nothing. Demon doctrine doesn't agree with the words of the Lord Jesus. Just take it back to the gospel. Does it agree with the message that Jesus taught and gave to his apostles? I mean, so many people that are teaching just be a good person, just a little goodness goes a long way. Listen, the rich young ruler tried that one on Jesus. He came to Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, hey, why do you call me good? In other words, let me ask you this before I give you my answer. What is your standard of good? Jesus himself defined good. So what he was saying to that rich young ruler is, I need to know. And I'm asking you this to think about it because I'm about to show you that it is not my definition of goodness. I, Jesus says, I define goodness on the basis of God and God alone. That's why we always call it God's kind of good. The question is, do you always have God's kind of good? The believer understands that we came to Christ because we recognize that we don't have God's kind of good. We are poor in spirit. We're bankrupt with that kind of stuff. It made us mourn. It made us meek. It made us hunger and thirst for what he alone only can give. God's kind of good is the very righteousness of Christ, which he purchased for us on the cross that we might be able to receive Demon faith will not go that direction. Notice too, demon faith doesn't have doctrine conforming to godliness. What's that mean? Doctrine that changes your life. I mean, a belief that changes how you live. Your standards, your convictions, your actions. Listen, doctrine is a big deal. In Titus 1, verse 9, an elder's job was to be able to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict, to take that sound doctrine and put it next to the life of a person claiming Christ and then to match it. If the life doesn't line up, then you exhort and refute. See? That's how you do that. So the first place to look at in our behavior is whether we are committed to sound doctrine. Joseph Hall says this, Doctrine without exhortation makes men all brain, no heart. Exhortation without doctrine makes the heart full, leaves the brain empty. Both together 
make a man. One makes a man wise, the other good. One serves that we may know our duty, the other that we may perform it. I will labor in both, but I know not in whether more. Men cannot practice unless they know, and they know in vain if they practice not. End quote. And so we start with a commitment to the mind and the heart. At the very end of First Timothy, chapter 6, Paul tells him, Guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly and empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. There's a lot of false knowledge out there. You have some argument, you have some, you know, some words, and maybe you have some research and some authors that are in your corner. But let me ask you this, but is it sound doctrine? Guard the sound doctrine. Theology that has come down from the apostles. See, that's what the last three weeks has been about, the doctrines of grace. Guard that. A church works right when she commits to sound doctrine. A church behaves right also when it, number two, preaches the word. Preaches the word. Now go to 2 Timothy 4. Now this is a very familiar text and we need to make sure we understand it. It's a, but it's also an important text. Verse 2. He tells Timothy, I'm about to die, and here's what I want you to pour yourself into. Preach the word. There's the main verb of this whole section. It controls the whole section. Preach the word. What word? God's word. The Bible. Revelation. So many churches today that have abandoned the preaching of the word for stories and anecdotal. Can't do that. Preach the Bible. When you preach it, preach it verse by verse. And tell people this. Let me explain what this means. Oh, now you have my attention. You're about to give explanation? Yeah, but that's not it. That's not, I'm I'm not done yet. After I explain what it means, I'm going to give you the so what, the the therefore. Therefore, we need to do this. Therefore, we need to think this way, right? Listen, let God speak through the Word. Hebrews 4, the Word is living and sharper than any two-edged sword. It is surgical. You open it and explain it and let it do work in the heart and it cuts and it cleans and it attaches and it makes that person able to function in a way that's greater that he was able to before that. And what that means is that we need to do major work through the pulpit. The pulpit has to be the center stage of the church. Preach is, is the word is caruso. It's, it means to proclaim, to be a herald, to cry out literally. It has passion with that word. I love what Martin Lloyd-Jones once said when he was asked 
Why? I mean, you spent years of your life as a doctor. Why now are you a pastor? Why did you, why did you preach? Why did you get into the pulpit to preach? And this was his simple statement that he said, because I had something to say. He wasn't proclaiming himself nor his opinion. What he was saying was, I studied this. I was floored by what the word of God said and meant. And I just had to tell people as many as I could. Make sure the church knows how vital, how important the word is. That's what he's saying. Thomas Brooks says ministers must so preach as if they lived in the very hearts of the people. As if they had been told all their wants and all their ways, all their sins and all their doubts. End quote. Yes, that's how you preach. Parents, you're the preachers in your own homes. That's how you preach. You give the word to your children as if you're living in the very hearts of them. As if you have been told all your child's wants and ways and their sins and their doubts. Give them the word on that basis. We live in a day where it is important to get your opinion out there. Where it is important to get your views to be liked. I mean, you say things on social media, and what do you do? You wait for the people to push the like button. How crazy is that? I mean, we have never been, there's never been a more myopic, narcissistic society than the one we have today. It is unhinged in that direction. In fact, you measure power and meaning not on the basis of it being true, but being liked. What? God doesn't get likes on social media. Have you noticed that? What he says cuts deep into the heart. He's likely to have a big fat zero where it says likes. And you look over and you say zero. Oh, people must not like that. No. Because he just offended you. And he offended me. And without the cross, that will never be precious. He cuts deep into the heart. His word is black and white. It isn't suggestion. Paul, excuse me, Peter understood that. I mean, Jesus preached a hard sermon in John 6. Remember that? And a bunch of people left and they walked away. And uh, they said, this stuff is too hard, too, too rigid, too unbending, I mean, to receive. And then Jesus said to the twelve, well, you don't want to go away too, do you? Peter said, well, where would we go? You have the words of eternal life. I mean, now th- that's how you receive preaching. You come as a lost person finding the only compass, the only direction, you come as a dying man coming to the only life. Paul told Timothy in chapter 3, don't forget the word gave you the wisdom that led you to faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. He said, how do you preach? What's, what's the method of preaching? How do you do this? Well, turn back to 1 Timothy now, chapter 4. 
verse 13. Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation and teaching. And in that, he says, Timothy, do three things. First, you expose the people to it. Expose them to it. This is the public reading. Put the text in front of people's eyes. Parents, you need to do it, do this with your family too. Don't just get out your Bible and start reading from it. Implore them to get their own Bibles. See, well, they can't even read. That's okay. You're getting them in the habit of that, right? You're getting them in the practice of that. That's what they do. That's what, This is just what we do. Open your Bible and read it. Take a section and read it. Expose them to the Bible. Let their eyes see it. And it doesn't have to be a big section, by the way. I mean, just start in a, a book like the Gospel of John and read it. And take them to chapter 1 and uh, the first 14 verses. And let their eyes see how many times it says that Jesus is the Word. Let them hear that the Word was with God and the Word was God. Let them hear that. Let them hear that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, walked among us, lived among us. Read it. Show it. Let them read it. Secondly, he says, give attention to the public reading. Then second, exhortation. And so exhort them from the Bible. What's that mean? This is, exhortation really is where you, you, you put, literally the word uh, means to put alongside, to come alongside something can be translated that way. Help them understand what it means. Look up words. Put them alongside it and begin to explain that text to them. Pay attention to sentences and things that it repeats. Remind them this is God speaking. Remind them who the human author is. Remind them about the context and what he has said and what he will say. And so that when you take them to John 1 and they see the word was with God and that the word was God, point them to all the miracles in the gospel of John so that they can see that this word truly did things that only God can do. And so you expose the text, you explain the text, and then thirdly, you enjoin them to the text. Attach them to it. Get them to see how vital it is to do it, to obey it, to apply it. Now listen, you can't just take them to John 1 and say, isn't this interesting? What? This is not just interesting. If Jesus is God, and there in verses 12 and 13, as many as received him were to receive him, 
you're not just receiving a person. You're not receiving a view. You're receiving God himself. How do you do that? You have to make them see that God wants them to change their thinking, that God wants them to change their lives, to stop doing certain things and start doing other things. God wants to change their relationships, their feelings, their plans, their opinions, their style, their language, their view on sexuality, and even how they go to work, preach the word. We don't preach ideas. We don't preach movements. We don't preach motivations. We don't preach entertainment. We preach the invasive, in-your-face, bold word from the living God of the universe. He's the John 1. The word was with God. The word was God. Let them know God came down. In fact, you know how we should preach it? Turn to Titus chapter 2. Verse 15. Listen to this. These things speak. Again, what are the these things referring to? I believe the whole chapter and really the whole, all of Titus, these things speak, these things, the things I've just been talking to you about, these things speak and exhort and reprove. Look at this, with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Today, you know, you offend people if you speak with authority. But that's just how Paul tells Titus he needs to preach with all authority. In fact, when he says, let no one disregard you, it is in the imperative, it is a command. You must not let anyone in the church disregard what you are saying. You've studied, you know the truth, now let it out and make sure others come under the weight of it, the authority of it. It's a powerful verse. Now, people are going to struggle with that. So go back to 2 Timothy 4, a little bit bit to the left, and um, notice verse 2. Be ready in season and out of season, only two seasons. You know, the kind where people like it and the kind where they don't. The, The kind where it feels like winter and the kind where it feels like summer. Okay? A little bit like Fallon's weather. Okay? Well, what should we do? I don't even know which season we're in. Just keep preaching. That's all he says. Preach the word in this season and in that season. And what do I need to keep doing? Preaching the word. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. Patience. I love that he says this. Listen, when people don't get it right away, that's okay. Just wait and smile and pray. And let the word of God do its work. Verse 3. Time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Who is not going to endure sound doctrine? They. Tell me who those people are. They. 
They're out there. They're here. They're here. They're not going to do it. Verse 3, because they want their ears tickled, they will find teachers who do that. They will find the feel-good sermons. They always do. And they're not hard to find them because they're a dime a dozen out there. Notice, in accordance to their own desires, it's, it's all about them and how they feel. I mean, that's going to happen, Paul says. What do we do? It's going to get worse, verse 4. They're going to turn their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. They're not just going to turn away from things. They're going to gobble up other things, things that are myths, things that are fiction and comic book and mythology-like. What should we do? Preach the word. In Isaiah 55, the Lord tells us in verse 10, For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there without watering the earth and making it bare and sprout and furnishing seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so will my word be which goes forth from my mouth. It will not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it. Oh, it's incredible. He says, when the word is preached, it will bear the fruit I want it to bear. You know what that tells me? I better do most, I better do my work in preaching the word. Getting the word out. God has built in success and fruit with his word and all we have to do is preach it. So, how does the church work? How do, how should we behave? Commit to sound doctrine. Preach the word. It behaves right when it, number three, confronts sin. Turn back to First Timothy verse 18. These three verses are a personal note from Paul to Timothy, but you understand what we should be about from it. Look at verse 18. And according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Okay. You know the work to do, he says. It's not going to be easy. It's going to, be, it's going to feel like you're fighting. I'll tell you this. You are. Listen, beloved, you're fighting. There's a part of ministry here in this church that feels like a fight. In fact, living the Christian life is like a fight, isn't it? When you become a Christian, when you became one, you entered into the ring. You weren't asked to. You did. Okay? And this is a fight. But make sure that you fight the, what does it say? Good fight. Don't fight a bad fight. Many of us are exhausted from fighting bad fights. We're not fighting the right fight. What's a bad fight? Being selfish with your spouse, that's a bad fight. Trying to get your way at work to make things easier for you, that's a bad fight. The good fight is the fight for truth. It is the fight to honor God. It's the fight for fellowship, for godly living, for marriages that are built as God's design for parenting that follows what the Lord wants. 
And so Paul tells Timothy, fight the good fight, verse 19, keeping faith in a good conscience, which some have rejected and suffered shipwreck in regard to their faith. Literally, shipwreck in regard to, in regard to the faith. Their connection to the faith. They, they ran their ship into the rocks. The ship that connected to the faith. They were going and they crashed. In other words, you were trying to keep faith. You fought to believe, to trust the Lord, to seek Him in His Word, following Him, learning what He says, and following it. You weren't deceitful. You weren't hypocritical. You were not saying one thing, but really thinking another. You lived with a good conscience. You meant what you said. There are others that have shipwrecked it, but He says, you are on this path where you're fighting the good fight. What do you do? There were others around you, though, that were crashing the ships of their spiritual life into the rocks. What do you do? Verse 20. Here's what Paul did. Among these are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, so that they will be taught not to blaspheme. He, He calls them out by name. To this church. Now what is this? This is Paul confronting sin. These two guys were most likely elders or teachers in the church. Maybe leaders in the church at something. And they were sinning and Paul confronted them. And we don't know exactly the sin except that they're blaspheming. When they... They wouldn't repent. He handed them over to Satan so that they would be taught not to blaspheme. Now, how do you blaspheme God? What is blasphemy? What is blaspheming God? It's real simple. It is speaking out against God. To speak against Him. That's what the word, the Greek word actually literally means. To speak against. It is to speak against His truth. It is then to contradict His word. To speak out against his word. He says essentially the same thing in Titus 3 in verses 9 through 11. You can read that on your own. I think the thing that I want us to pull away from here though is he goes, he wants this to be a church that does confront sin. Don't ignore it. Don't rename it a mistake or a problem or a vice. Call it what the Lord calls it. It is a sin. And urge that person to turn away from it. Romans 2, 4. The kindness of God leads you to repentance. When Jesus healed the paralytic who came to him through the roof, he said, your sins are forgiven. Why, why did he say that? Have you ever wondered that about that miracle? I'll tell you why. Because that was the issue, not the paralysis. The paralysis wasn't the real issue. Oh, you want everybody? Everybody's saying Wait, you can't do that. You can't. You can't. Say your sins are forgiven. Oh, you want me to show you that I can do that? I'll have this guy 
get up and walk before you. We don't even know that Jesus was intending to heal the guy of his paralysis. It's not what the guy came there for. And yet he does. You know what that tells me? That when he does forgive sins, he does it in a compassionate way. In a merciful way. We confront sin. and We don't do... We don't do it, though, like headhunters or like we belong to the spiritual FBI or something, you know. I mean, Galatians 6.1, Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself so that you too will not be tempted to go and do the thing that they're doing. And the idea is you love that person so much and you understand just what sin does to a person and so you go to him or her to help them deal with it for their own good, right? Paul always felt this. In first, you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 5? There was that guy who was uh, sleeping with his father's wife, st- stepmom. And this, so this guy's a sexual immorality. And he says, you guys got to deal with that sin. You got to confront that guy. Do you want to know something? They did. But they did it too much. Second Corinthians 2. Paul says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. And what happened is they drove that guy out and in church discipline. And, they, and when he repented, they wouldn't forgive him. They wouldn't let him back. They couldn't trust that guy anymore. They said, that's it. We're all done. Listen, we're supposed to confront sin. And they're thinking to themselves, we did it. And now we're done with this guy. But what if he repents? Tough, they say. We're being tough. He's got to learn his lesson. You get one shot. Listen, that's not like our Lord at all. Right? Confronting sin also means forgiving the sinner. Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ forgave you. So Paul is telling Timothy and Titus, guys, you got to confront sin. You can't ignore it. And what he means is you go and do it with a spirit of gentleness, ready to forgive. And I'll tell you, beloved, most churches are sweeping sin under the rug. You don't even get to the place where you have to exercise forgiveness because you don't confront the sin. And what this point is saying is this. Help sinners stop sinning. Help them. It's interesting. Paul even has something to say about confronting our leaders in sin. And you can read about that. In, in uh, chapter 5, verses, 1 Timothy 5, verses uh, 19 through 22. One last one that I'll mention, and then we'll pick this back up next time. 
A church that behaves, commits to sound doctrine, preaches the word, confronts sin, number four, rejects false teaching. Rejects false teaching. And you, we, we're going to learn a lot about this. The FBI, in the FBI, one of the things they, they, they do, I mean, you, you got a person, when a person is, um, wanting to learn where the fake counterfeit money is, he is taught in the FBI to become an expert at learning what real currency looks like. Dollar bills, 20s, and so forth. So they study the real ones to pick out the false ones. They become experts in the genuine so that the fake will stand out. Beloved, my fear is that we are just familiar with the Bible and not really working at becoming experts. We have to read to know Christ, and in our knowing, you have to become experts in what he wants us to know so we can guard the house. See. So this next point really has to do with taking a look and making sure through discernment that false teaching doesn't enter in. And we're going to talk about that a, a bit uh, next time. Let me leave you with um, a quote from Thomas Fuller. Thomas Fuller was uh, 1600s. He, in 1646, was desperate to try to reform the church in England as it was being challenged in more of a Catholic direction. It had turned Protestant, and so Thomas Fuller felt a duty to encourage and challenge the church. And he said this, No church in this world can be free from all faults. Even Ephesus, the best of the seven, had somewhat amiss in it. As long as there be spots in the moon, it is vain to expect anything spotless under it. The earnest of perfection, which is sincerity, may be received in this life, but the full payment thereof must be expected in another. Such a fancy, a possibility of a perfect church here, must not only mold a new form, but make a new matter. Cause frailty to be firm, flesh to be spirit, men to be angels, saints being too little in this life as full of their infirmities. Or we can see the church also like Christopher Love. The church is the garden of God. The doctrine is the flowers of this garden. Discipline is the hedge. Well, we're just getting started on how the church should behave. I mean, all those were just men that were so committed and devoted to just wanting the church to be everything that God said it needs to be. If we believe in those doctrines of grace, if we believe in the gospel that we proclaimed over the last three weeks, then we ought to be willing to behave like this. 
And I have some other points to bring. I won't tell you how many because you, you, you're for sure going to, you're going to, you're not going to think I'm going to be done in another month here. But anyway, we'll get there. Let's pray. Father, we love you and praise you. And Father, you've given us such a good word from scripture and word to help us, to help us to see ourselves, to see ourselves in light of you. And we always fall short when we do that. But thank God, thank you, Lord, for, for Jesus Christ, who gave himself that uh, we might be able to live out what you say. And so we do pray, Father, make us just aware of those areas and cause us to be a church that uh, behaves in a way that would make it clear that we are pillars who support the truth. We pray, Lord, for this in Jesus' name. Amen.